Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom and think. Each episode features a discussion of current topics from the latest consumer trends and new products to shifts in markets and lifestyles. I'm Andrew McDougall, one of the platform analysts for the beauty and personal care sector of Mintel. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined uh, by two of my fellow beauty experts. We have Sharon Quek, uh, who's representing our Asia office. Welcome, Sharon. Hello. Hi, Andrew. And we also have uh, Sarah Jindal, who is representing our US office today. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, guys. It's really great to have you both uh, on this call, partly because I know the time differences make this very difficult to do. So I appreciate um, both of you uh, making the time for this today. Uh, but it's also very exciting because we have a really special feature today uh, discussing our newly launched 2030 trends, which I know all three of us uh, and the team are very excited about. Um, but they are done slightly differently as they have this sort of 10-year outlook, obviously, uh, as opposed to the normal sort of two or five years. Uh, and so we've approached them in a slightly different way, um, as you would probably expect. Uh, this time opting for more of a sort of evolving spectrum looking at the two trends that we've picked out. Uh, Does anyone want to jump in early doors and sort of briefly explain and introduce why we've done the spectrum? Well, yeah, I I think the most important thing to kind of think about is um, the way that we've done the trends in the past, they've been these very specific um, kind of ideas and behaviors and concepts that sit in these little boxes. And I think what we've realized as we were sort of talking through putting these together this year is that consumers don't behave the way that we expect them to or want them to necessarily anymore. And so by not kind of recognizing that there's these sort of fluctuations in their behavior, depending on the situation, how they're feeling, the day of the week, you know, it's it's um, to, to assume that they're going to stay on this kind of linear line in terms of their reactions or their their behaviors is is naive, frankly. And so setting these trends up as kind of spectrums made the most sense because it opens up, you know, all these different opportunities for consumers, for brands, you know, retailers, whoever to kind of figure out where along that sort of line or where along those points they kind of want to position themselves and think about situationally what they might want to look like. Yeah, but I think the relationship between brands, consumers has definitely changed over time. We cannot look at brands, you know, like like before. I mean, no doubt there will be companies who will say like, what do we do next year? But I think it's more important to look further ahead because um, there's a lot of uh, changes recently or even in recent years, there's like cultural shift, lifestyle shift. We are very much influenced by technology even. All of that allow and require brands to be a lot more proactive put themselves where consumers are um, to really kind of like react, respond to actually stand out in today's competition. So you, they really need to navigate when we provide spectrums like that to really see where they can actually play around, play on this kind of like trend spectrum to really future-proof themselves as well. Yeah, I think as well, because of sort of the, the societies we live in today um, are all very different globally as it is, but we also find there's a lot of polarizing views as well. So it's sometimes some people are so intensely one side and some people are so intensely the other, but there's also this huge sort of gulf in the middle, this huge, not well, kind of like a gray area, I guess, but where people are sort of, they're unsure and sometimes they'll be sort of information-led or sometimes they'll be sort of emotion-led, you know, how, you know, they make decisions based on how they feel. So sometimes as well, especially when we are looking to future-proof and safeguard at the same time. Um, I think it's important to have these spectrums to sort of see exactly where we are now and potentially where we want to be going in the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then the, the other nice thing that we were able to do in putting these trends together was kind of look outside of Mintel and get people's opinions. So we did all those external um, interviews with retail experts and lifestyle experts and, you know, trend analysts and gosh, there was a whole, you know, bucket of, of people from all different walks of life that we were able to tap into and say to them, what do you think life will be like in 2030? And so we had all those really interesting, um, you know, quotes and, and bits of, of information that we were able to kind of leverage in order to put these together, which I think gave us some really interesting perspectives. And I think for the three of us in working to, um, you know, create these trends, it was nice to, um, kind of get out of our own heads, I think, sometimes and, and think about, you know, the wider world around us and, and what other people are actually thinking about for this sort of progression in the next 10 years. Yeah, and I think in different countries, people look at it very differently as well. Like speaking to our our colleagues in China, they definitely have a different viewpoint about certain things that we talk about and discuss. And then when you talk to you know, people in say like Singapore, everyone then has a different kind of like um, experience altogether to kind of think about how that would apply, how certain things that we observe in certain markets, will that be relevant to them as well? So that I, I think all forms together the entire like trend spectrum. Yeah, that global um, kind of view is really important because I've spoken to people in different regions and definitely get different different questions, different interpretations, mm. different feedback. So it's nice to have those sort of open, you know, discussions with different people. I'm glad you mentioned the the uh, the all the external interviews you did as well, actually, because they were so fascinating to go through. As you say, there's you know, I've seen different countries. We have all our mental analysts who have this sort of vast experience and knowledge to give us, but then to also take that step out, a step out of beauty as well, and sort of see all these other things of you know where is the world going to be it was exactly just, it was so interesting to see all that and and i know that we do we we incorporated a, a lot of that into into the trends presentations and pieces that we've been working on so uh, without any further ado potentially maybe we should delve into these two trends um okay. we have of course the panorama of humanity and also identity trader so i think maybe we should kick off with the panorama of humanity this sort of uh sort of push-pull concept between nature and science uh, and sort of where we see that evolving uh, and moving. Um, I mean, potentially we've seen that evolving and move over the last five years. And now that's sort of basing this forecast we now have for the next 10 years plus. Um, is, is there anyone that wants to sort of chip in now uh, and just sort of uh, sort of help to introduce the, the panorama of humanity a little bit more? Yeah, sure. I can do that. Um, but I like what you were saying about um, this is definitely not a new conversation. This is something that's been evolving and bubbling under the surface for a long time. And we've, we see that reflected in trends, you know, that we've published previously, like beauty with a brain, gastronomia, playing mother nature, you know, we've, we've kind of looked at this back and forth, I guess, between science and nature, between relying on your own sort of gut and your own knowledge versus expert information and researching and things like that. And so that's really what we're sort of looking at as we move into the future. We've now got, you know, all this technology, all these, you know, data collection and all this other stuff that's sort of swirling around that conversation that's now entering in and having a big impact on how we as consumers kind of gather, collect, and synthesize information and use that to figure out what we're going to do in response. What product will we buy? What food we'll eat? You know, the choices that we make, it really does become all dictated by all of this kind of information that we're able to integrate. But I think the other part of this too that we talk about quite a bit is the mistrust 
that consumers mm. now have with kind of the wider world around them because, you know, fake news and, and fear marketing and all of this kind of stuff that in this cancel culture that we live in, all these things that are going on around us kind of set people, I think, on the back foot a little bit in terms of what do I believe? You know, what's really the truth? And so, you know, a big part of this trend is is furnishing consumers with the, the right information at the right time to help them kind of wade through a lot of that and rebuild that trust. And so transparency, you know, it's the buzzword of the year. And I have probably said it 84,000 times in the last <laughs> month alone. Um, but it, it does become a really important part of the conversation, just having this openness so that consumers can say, okay, this is what I believe in. This is how I want to address this. And this is what I'm integrating and I'm falling on, you know, the side of nature and natural and, and you know, all of that. Or I'm going to take all that tech out there and all that biotech and the science and everything that's going on. I'm going to leverage it to the nth degree and I'm going to figure out a way to live forever. So, you know, you've got, again, the, this kind of, these two opposing sort of things going on, but there's a lot happening in the middle as well, which is where I think as we move forward, most people will, will start to settle in that kind of middle ground, whether they're, they've got the, the science part, they've got the nature part, and they're able to kind of marry and meld the two together. Yeah, I think that there's always been this this kind of idea that oh, if we play in the sort of the natural space, is it possible to look at a trend like this and think, okay, how relevant is this, is this going to be going forward? But there's so many drivers now uh, that's going to impact consumer goods in general, the world in general, um, that sort of push us towards um, the idea that we are going to have to look at alternative processes. In many cultures, we've been looking at some of these processes uh, for years already. So it's a case of now just maybe seeing these mainstream or move forward. Um, and you're so right about transparency as well being such a, <laughs> a buzzword that we use all the time. And I do wonder if that's really driven the um, the desire or the move and the popularity of the clean beauty industry going forward. I know we discussed this a little bit in the trend itself, um, but it is this idea that clean beauty, uh, whether we like it or not, and I know there's a lot of the industry as well that have trouble with with, with the terms, um, but, it, but it is that idea that it is popular right now because it's the way consumers look for certain products. We, have, we saw the same thing with Free From over the last few years as well. There is this, this fear marketing that is working. But I think, so I definitely think there's going to be space for clean beauty in the future, whether we like it or not. I think it's just the fact that we maybe need to change the language around it. We need to change what we focus on. And as you say, maybe clean beauty is just going to become beauty, but more transparent uh, and maybe more eco and ethical. Well, yeah, I mean, and you think about um, the conversations that are going on kind of on, kind of on a higher level around claims and labeling and what you can say and what you can't say. So, you know, especially in the EU, the whole free from landscape is changing based on some of those regulations. So that I think will only continue as we start to see, you know, the idea that if this is clean, then does that mean everything else is dirty? And is it fair? <laughs> well, it's true. But I mean, what's the opposite of clean? It's dirty. So you know, is it fair for one brand to market a way in a way that basically disparages everything that everyone else is doing? So mm -hmm. I think, like you're saying, that evolution and that language change needs to happen. And really what, what the focus needs to be is on safety, functionality, sustainability. Those are really the important kind of drivers under the surface that are pushing 
um, you know, brands and consumers to move in that direction. Yeah, and I think it's quite similar to what you mentioned as well when we talk about the whole issue around trust. Um, I think back then people or brands tend to use a little bit of like the scare tactics, telling people what's harmful, what's bad. But I think that is not going to work in the long run. People want to know like what you say about transparency, it's more of telling them uh, what works for them to bring, to move and shift from that whole scare um, to more of like security, assurance, and ultimately to that trust for the long-term kind of like engagement and relationship with their consumers. And so looking sort of in the short-term future then, how do we see uh, this trend really playing out? So potentially maybe in the next five years then, how are we seeing the evolution of this trend continuing? I mean, is it from from that sort of nature standpoint, but also how the science and the technology comes into play? Uh, I mean, just thinking, um, I know we've spoken before about things like personalization are going to be changed because of this trend. And we've discussed sort of how different brands and different retailers as well can actually play in this space, um, you know, to build that trust with consumers, but also to have much more customized products, um, but also looking at uh, the natural space as well and seeing how that's going to evolve through uh, instances through sort of biotechnology and fermentation processes, which I know we spoke about quite heavily a couple of years ago in the playing mm-hmm. Mother Nature trend. And and Sharon as well, I guess a lot of uh, companies in Asia are already uh, utilizing a lot of these these kind of fermentation processes already uh, in a lot of mm. in a lot of, um, of their products. So how do we see the sort of the next five years uh, sort of moving forward in this trend? Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, you you said it right there. All of this kind of tech and and biotechnology and and every it's it's already out there. Um, it's being used in other industries. Um, consumers are being more are becoming more comfortable with it as they see it more and more, whether they realize it or not. So it's only a natural progression that we start to see that move into the beauty categories. We're seeing it happening in food already with, like you mentioned, fermentation. You've got um, you know, veganism has become so popular. You've got so many people moving to kind of plant-based lifestyles sort of broadly for a variety of different reasons, obviously for health, but also for the environment. And so as we start to get more comfortable in the food categories, in the drink categories, in the clothing and fashion, you know, using um, alternative materials that are more sustainable, it's only natural that that comfort level then extends into what's happening in beauty. So we can... 100% leverage all of that um, thinking about, you know, this push for kind of natural, organic, and clean. Well, as we move into the future and we can't grow stuff anymore and things are becoming, you know, extinct and endangered and we've got fires and floods and droughts and everything going on, it only makes sense that we can leverage biotech in order to get those ingredients in a much more cost-effective and sustainable way because we're not going to be able to grow them anymore. So, and I think that we're, we're seeing that already happening. It, 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 that's, that's it. Like that is the future and it's not the distant future either. It's coming. Um, and so we, we just need to embrace it and be able to leverage that. If you think about, um, you know, clean is a great example because they don't, talk about those products being plant-based they talk about them being safe and that incorporates natural as well as synthetic or or you know produced ingredients so we already have it out there i think the language needs to change yeah that's a really good point actually as well about the whole clean beauty uh 
sort of conversation going forward as well is that again it, it is almost this case of well it is a combination of the two already because clean like nat- clean doesn't automatically mean natural or organic I mean there are obviously synthetic ingredients used it so it's much more about safety so Absolutely. as we sort of saying like, the, the conversation will have to continue yeah. um, and I know that we we sort of we touched upon when we we're looking at sort of five to ten years in the future we were then talking about uh, bioengineering being quite important and you know maybe we will see different um, genome sequencing or uh, DNA sequencing or, or different adaptations that we can do with science could be very important in the generation of crops and things. But I do remember one of the really interesting things we saw, and I think uh, a couple of the experts we spoke to uh, externally spoke about this as well, is this idea of sort of neuromarketing and neuroactivity really playing quite a big role. And Sharon, I know that you, um, I remember you gave us this really cool example, um, sort of uh, how that's really starting to play a role going forward. I mean, how, how do we see, sort of we're dealing with changing technologies, AI, and this sort of information overload. How are we seeing sort of uh, the neuro sort of field playing a role in cosmetics and beauty going forward? I think when we look at it, it's really um, how consumers are not just relying on um, you know, on science, on data, but at the same time, they want to also fall back on how they feel about certain things, um, their own instinct to a certain extent. So I think we are starting to see how with with um, the whole bank of data and with technology itself, brands can actually um, tap into what we call the unconscious emotions. So things that we kind of like think before we make a decision that would actually kind of like allow brand to make more precise decision before they launch a product, before they run a campaign campaign. Uh, Things like that. So the future, when we look at it, um, again, it falls back on the uh, idea of trust. It's definitely a whole mix of what we already see, um, a mix between technology, between you know, industry experts, as well as consumers themselves. So consumers get to be a part of this whole um, process, um, getting themselves being kind of like um, analyzed, being, um, for lack of a better word, diagnosed as well. And I think it's so interesting, too, with some of the examples that we talked about where, you know, normally when a, a brand or, you know, a company is doing their own sort of consumer research or getting feedback about a product, they, you know, give them the product, they've got a sheet of questions they need to answer. But I feel like there there's oftentimes such a disconnect between what you think you feel about something and how your brain or your body is actually reacting. And I think that's what this is tapping into. It's not just sort of looking at, you know, your facial expression or your body language. It can actually tap into the way that your brain and your body are truly reacting to something. And those aren't always the same. So that's what I find the most fascinating about this is this idea of your like subconscious or your non-conscious and how that's involved in that decision-making process, less so on what your kind of knee-jerk or your gut reaction might be that might not at all match up with how your brain is actually thinking. <laughs> it sounds crazy, <laughs> but it just I, it, I, it's so fascinating, and I think it's a really interesting it's essentially going to just weed out when you're lying about your beauty decisions. But I know yeah, you do want, much, you are yeah. willing to pay for this product. So <laughs> yes. you, need to, you should be buying yes, it. Your, my, your brain is telling, you're saying no, but your brain is telling me yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I love that. I love that kind of concept. But I, I mean, jokes aside, it is going to be very valuable for brands and uh, even for retailers going forward when you think of, okay, how, how should we price a product? Well, actually, we know how willing to pay people are for this type of product. If we priced it at £50 or $50, um, um, people are less willing to pay for it. Whereas if we price it at $40, maybe it's, you know, people are more willing to pay for it. So that could be very important exactly. going forward from, from the marketing point of view, but even just from that point of sale point of view and pricing. 
For sure. But yeah, it's how is that message being received? So in terms of putting, you know, campaigns, you see, see all the time these, you know, ads and billboards that go up and everyone starts yelling and screaming saying, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. How could they do that? How could they say that? They're alienating this person, that person, whatever. You know, they've now got the opportunity to kind of test those mm. things in a real way and get those, you know, non-conscious or subconscious reactions and really understand you know, how this would be received by a broader kind of group of consumers. But yeah, this I, I find fascinating. And I think it's got some real, real strong opportunities in the future. So just to, to summarize, I know we, we've hardly spoken about it at all, but to summarize sort of the, the panorama of humanity trend, then if there were sort of key takeaways or what brands or retailers or suppliers should be doing with regards to this trend, what would you say those key takeaways are? I mean, I think it's, thinking about what's going on, even if you say you are a company that is all natural, plant-based, organic, you know, what, however you want to classify yourself, I think ignoring what's going on with the science and the biotech is a mistake, um, especially as we start to understand, you know, the sustainable aspect of the products that you're making. It only, in the future, your only opportunity is going to be figuring out how you can leverage some of that moving forward. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, and then obviously just this idea of engaging with the consumer, giving them the right information, because we know consumers are doing all that research into brands, into companies, into product. So being able to furnish them with the good information that kind of supports, you know, what their gut might already be telling them so that they can comfortably sort of marry those two things together to make those decisions, I think is really important. Then obviously that leads us into, you know, the whole transparency conversation. Again, there's that word. Um, <laughs> But another thing that we didn't really talk that much about was um, using data as a way to kind of hyper-personalize product. Mm. We had some really interesting examples in the trend there around brands that are, you know, actually able to do that, but leveraging that as a way to get people into their retail environments. So they come in, you know, you get your DNA analyzed, you get your skin analyzed, whatever it is, and then they're able to design this sort of custom um, skincare regimen for you, and you can go back in and have that monitored. So I think being able to leverage data in, in ways like that becomes very appealing for consumers. Yep, I think data definitely play a very huge role moving forward as well. And I, I mean, there are questions around whether, you know, we just work with tech companies, we just put technology into everything that we formulate. Is technology going to replace jobs, replace, you know, everything that we do? But I think is that it's how we make use of data wisely. And again, as we mentioned a little bit earlier on as well, I mean, data aside, what we are looking at moving ahead as well is that um, human instinct, that's something that I think technology cannot replace. Then how do we kind of like uh, play around with data to kind of um, match it with or, or to pair it. with it? Yeah, to support with instinct to make it, you know, more relevant to consumers where consumers again get to be part of the whole brand journey within the industry, yeah. Yeah, and I think that it's important because we, we talked, uh, it's, I'm glad you mentioned data actually because we had almost forgotten to talk about sort of that, that side of things as well. Um, but it is interesting because obviously there, there was a backlash data a couple of years ago, which we've spoken about uh, in previous trends. Um, but I think when it comes to the beauty side of things, and again, that word transparency crops up, but I think consumers... Huh are willing to trade data for certain things. So obviously, you know, a brand has to be ethical in the, its use of the data. Uh, obviously, GDPR rules that are coming to play in Europe that a lot of 
global countries have adopted anyway. Um, it is very important to see how data is being used. People do safeguard a lot. But I, I, as I say, when it comes to beauty, if we can really give that benefit at the end, um, things like for certain skin conditions, the genetic testing you can do, um, or even hair conditions as well, finding out exactly what your biology is saying about you can really, as you said, sort of hyper-personalize that situation. So going forward, these things could be a lot more commonplace. I mean, we, we already have a lot more sort of take-home tests that people can, can use. We see it a lot in the health industry and the nutrition industry. Um, so again, the beauty industry is just that next step on that line. So it'd be very interesting, I think, going forward to see how that's all being utilized. So just uh, just to sort of stop there, I know we could talk about this trend probably for for another sort of 20, <laughs> yeah, 30 minutes, whatever. but I'm very aware of time. And I just thought we do have another fantastic trend as well. So Panorama of Humanity, thank you very much um, for very clearly explaining that, actually, and we got through quite a lot. Uh, but moving on now to identity traders, uh, this trend was much more about looking at connectivity, disconnectivity, and also reconnecting as well, this sort of sense of belonging. Um, so this trend was, uh, I mean, it, it utilizes a lot of the, the similar trends that we've seen uh, in, in sort of the global sense anyway, but this is really moving in a slightly different direction. Uh, and I definitely think it's a much more future looking trend as well when we think of how the world is going to be in 10 years time and the impact that that has on beauty. Uh, I mean, could you sort of, could one of you sort of maybe uh, briefly sort of give a, an introduction to the identity traders trend and where we're sort of coming from with this? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think it's a lot of what you were just saying about connection and disconnection and reconnecting. So, you know, we're living in this kind of world where everyone is quote unquote connected. You can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes because it's this kind of false perception of connection because it's all happening in the digital realm. I read a really interesting report recently about Gen Z and how they, how much time they spend on social media, um, how the majority of their interactions with their, their friends happens digitally. So it's a really interesting kind of world that we're living in and kind of evolving into. Um, you know, we talk about this sort of epidemic of loneliness that's going on and it's because people have this this perception of connection, but they're, they're not truly connected in real life, which is why we talk about this idea of reconnection. So it's really about, um, you know, breaking down those barriers, getting people offline, getting them back into the real world, um, this sort of hunger for authenticity authentic exchanges and real life connections. And so we see the rise of, um, you know, these third places that we talk about where people don't necessarily feel, you know, they feel isolated at home. They spend a lot of their time at work, but they don't feel like they have these genuine, authentic kind of experiences that are going on. So they're moving out, you know, into other places around the world um, in order to look for that connection. But we also talk about kind of geographical disconnection and how that impacts services, delivery, access to, you know, products and things like that and how we're sort of seeing that start to change and evolve so that we can really start to, you know, give all consumers access to the same um, services and product. Um, but then also the whole identity traders concept is, you know, who am I? How do I identify? How do I identify myself? How do I identify myself to other people? How do I go about finding kind of my tribe in this great wide world? Um, you know, I'm looking at some of the, the opportunities there and brands really do 
already create opportunities for people to, to connect and reconnect. Um, but we, we want to kind of push that even further as we move into the future and have them become almost facilitators for these sort of reconnections, but also kind of tapping into this idea of self-identity and, and you know, how we identify ourselves and our, our groups of people. Yeah, I really love that uh, that concept of third places as well that we sort of we discuss um, sort of quite heavily about that sort of sense of belonging and things because I always find as soon as I mention that to people or I have conversations with people just in the office or even at home actually and you sort of mention third places people are like, oh what's that I don't understand that um, but then when you explain it about yeah. the sort of this sense of belonging and actually there being somewhere else you can almost see people click and I've actually had people come up to me latterly and then say oh I've just realised what my third place is like this is where I feel <laughs> and it is really weird like it's almost as if like it's a confession it's kind of oh okay thanks very much i'm just eating my lunch but it was um, their secret but no yeah <laughs> but it is it's, it's fascinating to see um and i think i mean a good example of those are these sort of these fitness clubs and things like that the things like soul cycle and crossfit where you have this and even like things like yoga as well uh, particularly here in london and um, there's a lot of sort of apps where you can just sort of link up and just go to yoga classes randomly um, but it's a great place to socialize it's a great place to keep fit for some people to stay healthy um to be mindful mindful um, of themselves. We know self-care is so important right now. But you're also then putting yourself in a situation where you're meeting like-minded people. So the Mm. chances of you, you know, forming friendships and relationships with people in that type of a setting is so much stronger than if you were to just go to a bar, you know, and, and randomly meet someone. If you're in these types of environments, you know, you're, you're likely, if you're, you're all going to the same pop-up or you're going to the same kind of experience, you're likely to share a lot of the same common, you know, likes and dislikes and that sort of a thing. So you've got a better chance. It's like your rate of success is going to be much higher right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, although I would say, I would say you can still go to a pub can still be your third well, place. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I still envisage, I still envisage, envisage these sort of 1980s images your, of like cheers. Like, I don't want to yeah. take away your third place, Andrew. I'm just suggesting. I'm not suggesting that is my third place. Okay. Um, oh. my, my, mother, my mother may listen to this. So I, but no, I, I think it, it's oh. just so fascinating to sort of see that that kind of that intensity around and how lifestyle really does like you say meeting like-minded individuals and how lifestyle really does dictate where we feel comfortable and 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 so that is going to dictate the brands that we use and the brands that appeal to us and again to go back to to buzzwords we've used before authenticity is going to be so important in that Um, I don't think a brand or a retailer is going to be able to create a third space Um, and when we'd all love it if you know, as a brand, um, the third space for people was in our stores, uh, but that's oh. highly unlikely. <laughs> and, you know, you have to create the community within that store. It's about creating, as you say, that sense of belonging rather than saying this is a physical space you should go to. Um, so I, I just, I think it's, it's a very interesting sort of concept looking at that. Uh, and I know we discuss a lot about psychographics as opposed to dem- demographics being important to uh, target going forward for the next five to 10 years as well. And again, I think that's important because it shows that we are changing the way we're changing the way we interact and the way that we develop relationships with brands as well as people. We are developing um, sort of who we are as we go and we're, we're sort of bringing the brands with us. Well, in demographics, I mean, you know, it, it was kind of all we had for a really long time to kind of figure out who consumers are and what their behaviors are going to be. And so it sort of put us all in these little boxes. But what we've realized is that we don't 
sit in those little boxes anymore. So, you know, you mentioned the whole kind of lifestyle and wellness and how it's becoming kind of all encompassing and it's not just category specific anymore. If you don't pay attention to all those different behaviors and those likes and those dislikes, uh, you really don't have any idea who your consumer is. Yeah. And I think, I think going forward as well, that's definitely going to change. As you say, it's going to change the way that, um, we, we sort of, as I say, we, we get to know our consumers as brands uh, or as retailers. Um, so it's important to know how to sort of target those consumers um, and, and sort of find what makes them tick because every, every single consumer is going to be different. I know that we sort of, in this trend, we kind of develop that sort of train of thought a bit further to talk not only about um, obviously these these third places, these places to connect, but also about helping people to almost define themselves because we're almost seeing like the, the future of identity is going to change um, over the next sort of five to 10 years, people are going to change um, the way they perceive themselves. And we spoke earlier about um, some of the negative impacts that we've seen on society in general uh, over the last few years with regards to things like loneliness and um, depressions and, and people sort of maybe feeling, especially in the beauty world, feeling maybe um, their perception of their own beauty is being dictated by something else. But I mean, do, do you think um, that there is going to be this shift now where it's going to check like what is beautiful is going to change? It's going to be down to the consumer. I think it's already changing. I mean, you know, we talk about this epidemic of loneliness and and social media and, you know, you've got all this sort of, you know, like Instagram saying they're going to get rid of likes because they realize that that has a detrimental, you know, mental impact on people. So you've got all this unattainable imagery out there, these beautiful homes and, you know, stylish clothing and, you know, gorgeous hair and makeup and, if that's all the imagery that you're seeing, you know, without really processing the fact that that's curated and photoshopped and not (laughs) based in reality whatsoever, but especially for younger consumers, if they're seeing that, that just, it's not authentic. And again, you know, using another buzzword, but it's so true. How do you then kind of break out of that and just say enough is enough. There are no rules. I'm going to identify and and define my own beauty and my own image, uh, you know, however I want to and not kind of base that on what other people kind of say it should be. So I think that's really, again, we're starting to see that happening with, you know, the body positivity movement and, you know, embracing body hair and all these different things that are going on. But I think that will only become stronger and stronger as people start to just kind of break out of the, you know, break out of the mold and and say enough is enough. You know, you can't dictate to me anymore. I am an individual and this is me and people will feel more comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think with social media itself is that, you know, at the end of the day, what we see is what we are allowed to see. So, you know, it depends on what consumer want, want you to know about them as well. Um, but, you know, with all this inclusivity, and I think we see some YouTubers coming out to say that I may edit my photos, I may, you know, do a lot of Photoshopping, but my identity, I'm real. That's me. I'm authentic. So I, I, I guess that, again, shows that a lot of things voice down to uh, consumers, how they want to feel, how they want you to know how they are feeling as well. I love as well, was it you, Sharon, that um, sort of uh, introduced us to the, it was the body archy concept where you kind of go yeah. into a room and I mean, that was just fascinating. Like this idea that you just go into a room, a mirrored room and kind of say what you think you need to change about yourself rather than having someone else. Correct. So it's, it's such that you kind of like self-administer how you want to improve and enhance whichever body part that you are not most pleased with. So it, it really is on its own, when you look at it from the aesthetic point of view, is that this whole idea has really shifted drastically. I think 
in the early 2000s, it's really very much about, oh, change my outlook. I want to look like, you know, this celebrity, this person. And then, you know, people go through a very invasive processes, procedures to get themselves like um, altered. And then, um, you know, as technology advanced, people start to say, oh, no, it's not so much about looking like someone, but maybe from your professional point of view, how should I really improve myself? Is it a 20-inch uh, waistline is the most ideal definition of beauty of a nice body. You know, is that how we define beautiful? Um, and then now, you know, as we see examples like body arcade, we are no longer relying on looking like someone or even, um, how professionals is telling you to look like. Whereas you just go into a room privately and then, you know, change whatever you want to change. And only you know what you have actually kind of like enhanced and make improvement on. I quite like the idea. Although I don't know if I trust myself actually to, to say what's best for me, but I do. I know I do like the idea, and I like this this changing concept. You say because on, on the one hand we're talking about obviously not a backlash, but we're seeing people sort of step back and really question uh, identity and, and the way that we view that going forward, uh, and using advancements in technology to do that. But in the same way, the advancements in technology are also so positive. I know Sarah right at the start of uh, this conversation on identity traders, you mentioned about the geography of things, and that's sort of maybe uh, one of the other key points I just wanted to touch upon uh, before we finish about this this idea of because of the advancements in technology that are so great, we are making the world a smaller place and in some aspects making the universe a smaller place, which is, again, may seem a bit futuristic and a bit out there, but is it could also have big impacts on the beauty industry when we think of, uh, you know, 5G networks being powerful and having low latency enough to do uh, surgeries, for example, that could potentially be adopted into beauty. Or I know we also discuss space travel as well. Um, and although, again, that does seem very far-fetched <laughs> and out there, it's interesting to see what well, those technologies <laughs> technologies used to get to space aren't important in beauty. So it's, it's going to be interesting um, just to sort of wrap up just how those trends are going to uh, really play out in the next 10 years. Well, I mean, the, the, the whole space thing, you know, you, you mentioned that one and people just go, oh, you're crazy. It's never going to happen. But actually, <laughs> there's already, you know, tech out there that is being leveraged across a variety of different industries that actually could have big impacts in other areas. So I think as you move into the next 10 years to kind of ignore what's going on is, is a detriment because, um, you know, you look at kind of, there was a brand we talked about a couple of years ago that actually grows, cultivates some of their ingredients in a zero gravity environment because what they realized was that they could actually get different efficacy out of those products by mm. changing the growing environment. Yep. So, I mean, something as simple as that is inspired by space travel. So, I don't think we need to think about, oh, do I need to make a zero gravity face cream? No, that's not what we're suggesting. But what we are suggesting is, is paying attention to what's going on, leveraging that technology and taking inspiration from what's going on. So something as simple as um, hydroponics came mm -hmm. from space farming technology and we already use that. So, you know, it doesn't have to be as kind of out there as we think it is. There is really strong opportunities to leverage kind of the tech and some of the inspiration from what's going on from the, the kind of space race or the new space race that that's going on right now. And there's so, there's so many studies and sort of scientific data available already on those things. Like that, you know, you could look, as you, you mentioned earlier on, I think, uh, I think there was a brand in China we used with the ginseng extract, yeah. wasn't it? There were, that was it. So yeah. space aging. And <laughs> I, as you say, like there's, there is that data already available. So it's interesting to see how that could be used going forward. And, and like you say, we do in agriculture in particular, we already use um, space farming, you know, 
techniques or processes, or they, they do have an influence going forward. And as we move towards sustainability, which again, we keep always talking about, those types of things are going to be important, particularly when it comes to sort of sourcing of these natural ingredients or, or looking at those kinds of things like make, you know, making the most of the ingredients that we source. Absolutely. And then Sharon, you had a really interesting example about um, people kind of moving out of cities into villages and how that changes their access to to product and brand. Yeah, that's right. I think we see that happening in emerging markets, especially within like Southeast Asia. And that example was Cora, uh, mm. which t- took place across um, Indonesia where they get, um, where they basically basically provide a livelihood for, you know, um, women, for mothers there to actually be sort of like agent to consolidate orders. So it's kind of like bring uh, what we do in the in the urban cities where we do go on to e-commerce to buy off stuff. So that actually happened. It's like bring commerce into the village without technology. So it's going to show us how, you know, a lot more established brands as they look into expanding their consumer outreach, how they can actually do so without the need for always like technology because in all these kind of like developing uh, markets or even like those uh, cities, rural areas, there's no way they will have internet access. Then how do you actually reach them? Because there's like, we're talking about thousands, 10,000 over of such villages out in say, just just one country alone. And imagine there's a few other um, Southeast Asia markets in the world. So you're missing out on a huge pie, actually, a huge group of consumers who would also love to actually use your products. Yeah. And that's quite interesting as well, because I think sometimes when you hear concepts like that, you kind of think, well, those kind of things maybe already exist or um, it doesn't seem that revolutionary. But I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in um, sort of looking at technological advances and innovations all the time that we kind of forget that there's a lot of markets still out there that are underserved. So in 10 years time, those markets are really going to thrive from having that connectivity and having that um, so that sort of technology brought to them. The, the, I, th- I love the Cora example because it is this idea that although we like to think about uh, the world being so connected, there are still parts of the planet that, um, you know, still still a, a, not a that look, connected a, well yeah looking for connection to the internet for example and, you know and <laughs> so we do still have these communities that i think are underserved and i think it's important for brands to not forget about them as well going forward mm. those identities as well are also going to be very important yeah and i think that just highlights where you know brands or retailers or what have you can really get creative in thinking about different ways to connect to those sort of disconnected consumers. Like you said, it doesn't have to be, you know, through drone deliveries or robots. It can be something as simple as tapping into, you know, people in those local environments and turning them into kind of the advocates for their brand or the the distribution hub or something like that. It doesn't have to be, you know, super techie and, and really highly involved. I think that just highlights, um, you know, kind of going back to basics a little bit and thinking about how you serve the, and it's a massive group of consumers, you know, we're not yeah, just, it's a, it's a community on its own, actually. So again, it, it plays around with the idea of, you know, building your own community and then mm. making that work as well. So to sort of summarize the, the identity traders, again, we haven't had long enough to speak about it, but yeah. um, if you were to sort of your key takeaways from identity traders, I mean, it just, it seems to, it, it covers so much talking about sort of from a geography aspect, sort of this sort of local to global um, aspect that we look at. Um, but it's also that, you know, we earlier on, we spoke about that sense of belonging and, and sort of those online offline connections. So are there any sort of key takeaways that brands, retailers, suppliers, uh, or just beauty companies in general should be looking at? I mean, I think it, for me, my kind of favorite 
part of this trend to sort of talk about is that connection versus disconnection and that online versus offline and what's real and what's not and the whole kind of obviously authenticity conversation that comes into play there. And I think, you know, from a brand perspective, there's some really interesting opportunities there to help create these communities, um, you know, and encourage people to meet kind of like-minded consumers and get out into the real world and sort of experience something as opposed to constantly being tied to these different devices and really starting to, you know, figure out how they want to identify themselves and how they want to live their own life and not really relying on this constant, you know, visual messaging that we get um, that kind of says you should do this or you should do that or you should look a certain way. You know, let's let's break out of that and, and really just kind of get back out into the real world. One of the people that we interviewed had a really interesting um, comment was something around how community and connection will become a luxury. And I thought that was really fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for me, definitely we are looking at the future of identities because now we are dealing with digital identity as well as your real identity. Um, I think that that will really be important down the road as well. Um, people are playing around with the idea um, similarly and I definitely also like this whole idea around building a community, uh, tapping into different kind of like um, cultures even. And I think for the beauty industry, it's no longer just looking at beauty alone. Definitely, we see that happening gradually already because there's a lot of um, cross-industry collaboration as well. So I think beauty definitely has broadened its sort of like definition, spread itself really wide um, over the years. Um, and, and if time permits, I was just reading this beauty magazine this afternoon and they were interviewing this um, CEO of uh, Briojo, where she was talking about something and that really struck me was when she talked about her hiring process um, and how she created the whole brand culture. She, she said that she started out looking for people who are passionate about beauty and about the brand. And that obviously makes perfect sense, right? Um, and she thinks in doing that, culture will evolve. Then she come to realize that it's actually not necessary. She hired a director of human resource to uh, on board and that was actually a, a very wise decision that she felt she has made because um, with the hiring of this person, this person actually helped her to think about initiatives that can actually build the culture as well as the team internally. And when this kind of like connectivity is formed at different levels from um, brand within the brand itself, then it actually ultimately drive the brand outside to consumers and ultimately drive also the growth um, in an, in an overview altogether. So it could be as little as, you know, getting people together for their company point of view is um, getting people together for like weekly lunches, gatherings and all that to slowly cultivate and build up their own um, culture, their brand culture to then influence their consumers ultimately. I love that idea as well. It's a great it, example. Yeah, as you say, like it is literally building building trust within that culture as well. Like you know, no matter how small, it's just the little things that are going to make people connect with you. So I, I really like that idea. I like that, mm. um, that example. And that's a topic we didn't really touch on, but it's the idea that um, you know the culture within the company becomes a culture outside, and mm. I think yeah. sometimes brands forget about that. They're trying to kind of create this persona, but they really need to kind of live it and breathe it internally as well. Yeah, exactly. Consumers it's, it's know, again, authenticity. Consumers know. 
Yeah, it's, it's going to be a much more authentic message, isn't it? If it, yeah. you, you can kind of tell. Um, and we live in the troll society, so so exactly. if, if, if it's obvious that that's not the case, you're going to be called out quite easily. Oh, for sure. Well, unfortunately, uh, I think that's probably all we've got time for today. Thank you so much both uh, for your insights. I mean, I know that I've spoken with you uh, a lot over the last few months as we've sort of discussed these trends going forward and putting this all together. But I really do feel like I myself actually have learned a lot and even sort of seen things clear. And some of the examples we've used today um, are definitely stuff that I'll take forward thinking about this. So thank you very much, uh, Sharon and Sarah as well. Thank you both so much um, for being involved in this and for explaining uh, help or helping to explain um, these trends going forward. Um, yeah, so, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that, um, as I say, that about does it for today. Uh, to learn more um, about the 2030 trends uh, or more about uh, Mintel in general uh, and any of the, dis- the topics that we've discussed today, and then head over to uh, Mintel.com and you'll be able to find out loads and loads of information over there. Uh, also, be sure to subscribe to Little Conversation uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for listening and have a great day. Mm-hmm.